3: Get your news in less than three
2: minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: Jeremy Klaus is founder and editor of The Sprawl. Joining me from Calgary. Hello. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing great. Uh, Jeremy, today we are going to talk about Canada's best-funded digital media startup. It's a shit-posting propaganda hose funded by the government of Alberta. I'm jealous. Also, we will talk about the journalistic issues that can arise when you're reporting about things that you are purposefully ignorant about. Sueton continued. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Lauren Galuli. Peter Vanderleek, Tara Sloan, Donald Heights, Crystal Breka, Hillary Eisen, Uday Srinivasan, and
1: Roy. This is Roy from Vancouver, and I'm happy to support Canada Land because it tells me things I didn't get from other media. I didn't know things were that bad in Thunder Bay. I didn't know that Canada had that many dynasties, despite listening to Canadian news all my life. And because I do know that Canada has some of the most concentrated media ownership in the world and it badly needs oversight. Canada Land's doing a good job of it. Keep it up.
4: Is founder and editor of The Sprawl, joining me from Calgary. Hello. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing great. Uh, Jeremy, today we are going to talk about Canada's best funded digital media startup. It's a shit posting propaganda hose funded by the government of Alberta. I'm jealous. Also, we will talk about the journalistic issues that can arise when you're reporting about things that you are purposefully ignorant about. Sueton continued. Glad to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Lauren Galuli, Peter Vanderleek, Tara Sloan, Donald Heights, Crystal Breka, Hillary Eisen,
1: Uday Srinivasan, and Roy. This is Roy from Vancouver, and I'm happy to support Canada Land because it tells me things I didn't get from other media. I didn't know things were that bad in Thunder Bay. I didn't know that Canada had that many dynasties despite listening to Canadian news all my life. And because I do know that Canada has some of the most concentrated media ownership in the world and it badly needs oversight. Canada Land's doing a good job of it. Keep it up.
4: So, Jeremy, I think people by now might have heard of this war room that your premier, Jason Kenney, has set up to fight the globalist forces trying to misinform everybody about the ethical oil that we produce in Canada. Uh, We've had enough, uh, and Albertans have had enough, of these lies being spread by these Soros-funded—I don't know if he said that. But he feels there's a lot of negative anti-oil stuff out there, and so he's dedicated— I think it's 120 million dollars over four years. That's what the Globe and Mail says. A so 30 million dollars a year to this war room to fight anti-oil sands messaging. 30 million a year. Jeremy, you run the sprawl. You got like 900 crowdfunding supporters for your local news outfit. What's your budget per year? <laughs> I
5: wish it was comparable to that. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny situation taking on these foreign-funded. Radicals, including, most recently, The New
4: York Times. The New York Times. If I had $30 million to fight anti-oil sands propaganda, and The New York Times ran some just scurrilous, just baseless slander of my beloved oil sands, such as this piece that recently ran, the headline was, Global Financial Giants Swear Off Funding an Especially Dirty Fuel. So, you know, meaning is, is comprised of, of words and, and, you know, global financial giants, they exist. They have sworn off funding. Yes, they have. An especially dirty fuel. Well, that's the part that I think that uh, the worm didn't like. But I mean, it kind of is an especially dirty fuel. Anyhow, the worm didn't like that. And the war room, with their $30 million, has some pretty high-level tactics for fighting scurrilous information like that, uh, published by the New York Times. They like to kind of get down with the kids on social media and speak in uh, kind of the vernacular of the Internet. So what we had was uh, a series of tweets from the Canadian Energy Center, which is the war room, trying to discredit the New York Times. (laughs) The New York Times has had a beef with Alberta for some time now, says the Canadian Energy Center. They aren't the most dependable source. Oh, well, you're giving me food for thought there. Uh, Their track record is very dodgy. Says the Canadian Energy Centre of the New York Times, they have been accused of anti-Semitism countless times. Can't even count the number of times New York Times has been accused of anti-Semitism. And what what else did they dig back to? They're like the Jason Blair scandal. Jason Blair. Everybody remember Jason Blair twenty years ago? There was a New York <laughs> Times reporter who just made stuff up. Maybe there's a new Jason Blair, and he wrote that article. Maybe he wrote that article. Exactly. What else did they get to? They were like, the the Times had like a, a problematic obit of Walter Cronkite that I think they very quickly and thoroughly corrected. But that was also thrown into this pile of reasons to not believe. Like you've got the government of Alberta telling people to basically like, don't believe anything the New York Times says. (laughs)
5: <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to take aim at the New York Times and go back, you know, 15 or 20 years, I was surprised they didn't include the weapons of mass destruction, uh, Saddam Hussein stuff. Like, I mean, that's just sitting right there.
4: There's a lot of problems with it. I mean, you know, any news organization, even the New York Times has, a, you know, there's a history of corrections and problems and flaws. But, you know, it's just sort of like a, an organized government. Like, let's assault truth, you know, like a source of pretty high level journalism most of the time because it's come into conflict in stating facts about the financial divestment and the cratering of the fossil fuel market. Like it was a factual news piece. I don't think that the war room had anything to say, uh, calling into question any of the information in the times piece.
5: No, they did do a piece after that did get into the piece. I mean, this is the war room is in its way, a thing of beauty. (laughs) it's comedy it's pure comedy and chris turner actually said something he he wrote a piece recently for uh alberta views magazine calgary journalist chris turner uh, a satirical piece on the war room and he said like basically forget that piece like i can't top what they're actually doing and that's how it's been like since day one like this thing launched december the first thing was their logo was plagiarized (laughs) (laughs) Uh And so this gets called out on Twitter. Uh, Yeah. And the layers are crazy. You know, it's done by this ad agency that just kind of came out of nowhere within recent months. It was eventually revealed that the dog of this ad agency...
4: Like the the house dog of the agency? Yeah,
5: he was like the sales dog or recruiting dog or something. You know, he was given a pic and a bit of a bio on the website. Anyways, it was a stock photo of a dog. (laughs) So... Just top to bottom uh, with this thing. It's it's been funny. And the funny thing, too, is...
4: That's just heartbreaking, though, Jeremy. A second ago, that really humanized them for me. And now I I don't believe in nothing.
5: So Tom Olson runs this thing. Tom Olson is a former Calgary Herald columnist. Mm -hmm. Uh, He covered the Alberta legislature uh, for many years. And he went straight from his columnist gig to the Alberta government. The conservative government and became a spokesperson for Premier Ed Stelmack. And even at that time, he was on this thing about we need to correct media. Like media is rife with all these kinds of mistakes, and we need to be on their case, and we are a credible source that's gonna, you know, set media straight. He did something similar that was just an in-house thing, part of the the Alberta government, part of their website where they would do this sort of thing like something would run in the new york times or something would run in national geographic uh and then they'd be like no this is wrong and they
4: kind of rapid response team
5: well that's what's new about this thing is that so tom olson ran in the last election ran for the ucp ran for jason kenny's ucp lost in calgary which takes some doing and then yeah so now he's in charge of This thing that's billed as a rapid response war room. And when Kenny launched this, the question was like, what is the point of this, basically? And his big thing was like, this war room will be able to respond more rapidly than your conventional communications department. Mm -hmm. They've certainly done that. So I guess kudos to them. (laughs) Did you see the Givener tweet? I didn't see the Givener tweet. What is that? Part of the the beauty of this thing is just watching the language change, like any new startup, even like, yeah, I run the sprawl. It's like you're trying to find the, your voice in the beginning. Like, what is the voice of this thing? And such has been the struggle of the Canadian Energy Center. So they retweeted something from Brett Wilson, our local oligarch, uh saying that the tech oil sands mine would have the lowest emissions ever. And somebody calls them out on that. Uh, Andrew Leach at the University of Alberta is like, why are you guys retweeting lies? And, and here's what the Canadian Energy Centre tweets in response. Whoops. That was done in error. I was given her this morning and got a little carried away. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. So you're just kind of wow. watching it. And then later in the day, Tom Olson tweets from his personal account says, I apologize for some of the tweets in Canadian Energy Center Twitter thread this morning. The tone did not meet our standard for public discourse. The issue has been dealt with internally.
4: (laughs) What what are those? Our propaganda machine has certain standards. And this fell short of those. uh, Yeah. Let me ask you this, though, because you're going to have perspective on this in Calgary that I do not. Reading the Times piece as it lays out this story. Because the piece covers the war room itself. And and it and it sort of removed, you know, a thousand foot view down from The New York Times and into Alberta. And it's like well, there's this premier, Jason Kenney, and he has said that there is this organized effort to, to smear the oil sands and he's going to fight back. And um, he's promised to put like subway advertisements and billboards in the jurisdictions, in American jurisdictions where they're using Saudi oil, which is lower emission, but it's Saudi oil to embarrass the local government and just laying out facts that have become kind of familiar here in Canada it paints a portrait of like this absolutely backwards Canadian province that is just like forthright in pushing a narrative that just seems like absolutely at odds with um not just like a progressive environmentalist point of view but where the entire economy is moving and where you know like policies around the world and investment around the world are moving and this guy's just like, no, I'm digging in my heels. This is the way it is. And it's interesting to read it from that outsider perspective because it, it kind of puts it into stark contrast. Like, wow, I, I've gotten used to a really strange narrative. I wonder if that narrative is powerful in Calgary. The feeling of of um you know we are put upon and they're out to get us. Like is, is that still a currency that works? And is is that a message that like Oh yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And it's a powerful currency, uh, especially when you have people who, you know, have lost their, their jobs at oil and gas companies. It's a very powerful currency, you know, that there are these forces that are amassed against us to use, uh, Kenny's verbiage, foreign funded forces. And a lot of this is based on Vivian Krauss's work. Yeah. Not so much the Canadian energy center, uh, but, the Alberta government is also having a public inquiry into foreign-funded anti-Alberta campaigns. And so the idea here is, you know, there's all this American money coming into Canada to these environmental NGOs that are, you know, holding up energy projects and thwarting the economy and so
4: on. You have to imagine that whatever comes after the oil sands for Alberta whatever that plan is, could probably use $120 million to get it going.
5: Well, exactly. I can't wrap my head around that $30 million budget. I think, yeah, I have no idea where that's going. And, and I'm pretty sure you can't FOIP it either because of the, the way this is set up. It's not
4: part of the government, per se. Well, that dog photo wasn't free. So, Jeremy, I think people by now might have heard of this war room that your premier, Jason Kenney, has set up to fight the globalist forces trying to misinform everybody about the ethical oil that we produce in Canada. Uh, we've had enough, uh, and Albertans have had enough of these lies being spread by these Soros-funded. I don't know if he said that, he, but he feels that there's a lot of negative anti-oil stuff out there, and so he's dedicated. I think it's 120 million dollars over four years. That's what the Global Mail says. A so 30 million dollars a year to this war room to fight. Anti-oil sands messaging, $30 a year. Jeremy, you run the Sprawl. You got like 900 crowdfunding supporters for your local news outfit. What's your budget per year? (laughs) I wish it was comparable to that. (laughs) Let's just say that.
5: (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny situation. Taking on these foreign-funded radicals, including, most recently, the New York
4: Times the New York Times, if I had 30 million dollars to fight anti-oil sands propaganda and the New York Times ran some just scurrilous, just baseless slander of my beloved oil sands, such as this piece that recently ran, the headline was Global financial giants swear off funding an especially dirty fuel. So you know meaning is is comprised of, of words and and you know, global financial giants, they exist. They have sworn off funding. Yes, they have. An especially dirty fuel. Well, that's the part that I think that uh the worm didn't like, but I mean it kind of is an especially dirty fuel. Anyhow, the worm didn't like that, and the war room with their 30 million dollars has some pretty high-level tactics for fighting scurrilous information like that uh, published by the New York Times. They like to kind of get down with the kids on social media and speak in uh, kind of the vernacular of the internet. So, What we had was uh, a series of tweets from the Canadian Energy Center, which is the war room, trying to discredit the New York Times. (laughs) The New York Times has had a beef with Alberta for some time now, says the Canadian Energy Center. They aren't the most dependable source. Oh, well, you're giving me food for thought there. Uh, Their track record is very dodgy, says the Canadian Energy Center of the New York Times. They have been accused of anti-Semitism countless times can't even count the number of times new york times has been accused of anti-semitism and what what else did they dig back to they're like the jason blair scandal jason blair everybody remember jason blair 20 years ago there was a new york <laughs> times reporter who just made stuff up maybe there's a new jason blair and he wrote that article maybe he wrote that article exactly What else did they get to? They were like, the the Times had like a, a problematic obit of Walter Cronkite that I think they very quickly and thoroughly corrected, but that was also thrown into this pile of reasons to not believe. Like you've got the government of Alberta telling people to basically like, don't believe anything the New York Times says. (laughs)
5: <laughs> yeah I mean if you're gonna take aim at the New York Times and go back you know 15 or 20 years I was surprised they didn't include the weapons of mass destruction uh Saddam Hussein stuff like I mean that's just sitting right there
4: there's a lot of problems within it I mean you know any news organization even the New York Times has a you know there's a history of corrections and problems and flaws but you know it's just sort of like a, an organized government like let's assault truth, you know, like a source of pretty high level journalism most of the time because it's come into conflict in stating facts about the financial divestment and the cratering of the fossil fuel market. Like it was a factual news piece. I don't think that the war room had anything to say, uh, calling into question any of the information in the Times piece.
5: No, they did do a piece after that did get into the piece. I mean, this is the war room is in its way, a thing of beauty. (laughs) it's comedy it's pure comedy and chris turner actually said something he he wrote a piece recently for uh alberta views magazine calgary journalist chris turner uh, a satirical piece on the war room and he said like basically forget that piece like i can't top what they're actually doing and that's how it's been like since day one like this thing launched december the first thing was their logo was plagiarized (laughs) (laughs) Uh And so this gets called out on Twitter. Uh, Yeah. And the layers are crazy. You know, it's done by this ad agency that just kind of came out of nowhere within recent months. It was eventually revealed that the dog of this ad agency...
4: Like the the house dog of the agency? Yeah, he
5: was like the sales dog or recruiting dog or something. You know, he was given a pic and a bit of a bio on the website. Anyways, it was a stock photo of a dog. (laughs) So... Just top to bottom
4: uh, with this thing. Oh. It's, it's been funny. And the funny thing, too, is. That's just heartbreaking, though, Jeremy. A second ago, that really humanized them for me. And now I, now I don't believe in nothing.
5: So Tom Olson runs this thing. Tom Olson is a former Calgary Herald columnist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he covered the Alberta legislature uh, for many years. And he went straight from his columnist gig to the Alberta government. The conservative government and became spokesperson for Premier Ed Stelmack. And even at that time, he was on this thing about we need to correct media. Like media is rife with all these kinds of mistakes, and we need to be on their case, and we are a credible source that's gonna, you know, set media straight. He did something similar that was just an in-house thing, part of the the Alberta government, part of their website where they would do this sort of thing like something would run in the new york times or something would run in national geographic uh and then they'd be like no this is wrong and they kind
4: of rapid response team
5: well that's what's new about this thing is that so tom olson ran in the last election ran for the ucp ran for jason Kenney's ucp lost in calgary which takes some doing and then yeah so now he's in charge of This thing that's billed as a rapid response war room. And when Kenny launched this, the question was like, what is the point of this, basically? And his big thing was like, this war room will be able to respond more rapidly than your conventional communications department. Mm -hmm. They've certainly done that. So I guess kudos to them. (laughs) Did you see the Givener tweet? I didn't see the Givener tweet. What is that? Part of the the beauty of this thing is just watching the language change, like any new startup, even like, yeah, I run the sprawl. It's like you're trying to find the, your voice in the beginning. Like, what is the voice of this thing? And such has been the struggle of the Canadian Energy Center. So they retweeted something from Brett Wilson, our local oligarch, uh, saying that the tech oil sands mine would have the lowest emissions ever. And somebody calls them out on that. Uh, Andrew Leach at the University of Alberta is like, why are you guys retweeting lies? And, and here's what the Canadian Energy Centre tweets in response. Whoops. That was done in error. I was given her this morning and got a little carried away. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. So you're just kind of wow. watching that. And then later in the day, Tom Olson... Tweets from his personal account says, I apologize for some of the tweets in Canadian Energy Center Twitter thread this morning. The tone did not meet our standard for public discourse. The issue has been dealt with
4: internally. (laughs) What what are those? Our propaganda machine has certain standards. And this fell short of those. uh, Yeah. Let me ask you this, though, because you're going to have perspective on this in Calgary that I do not. Reading the Times piece as it lays out this story. Because the piece covers the war room itself and and it, and it sort of removed, you know, a thousand foot view down from The New York Times into Alberta. And it's like well, there's this premier, Jason Kenney, and he has said that there is this organized effort to to smear the oil sands and he's going to fight back. And um, he's promised to put like subway advertisements and billboards in the jurisdictions, in American jurisdictions where they're using Saudi oil, which is lower emission, but it's Saudi oil to embarrass the local government and just laying out facts that have become kind of familiar here in canada it paints a portrait of like this absolutely backwards canadian province that is just like forthright in pushing a narrative that just seems like absolutely at odds with um not just like a progressive environmentalist point of view but where the entire economy is moving and where you know like policies around the world and investment around the world are moving and this guy's just like no i'm digging in my heels this is the way it is and it's interesting to read it from that outsider perspective because it, it kind of puts it into stark contrast like wow I, i've gotten used to a really strange narrative i wonder if that narrative is powerful in calgary the feeling of of um you know we are put upon and they're out to get us like is, is that still a currency that works and is is that a message that like oh yeah yeah
5: yeah. And it's a powerful currency, uh, especially when you have people who, you know, have lost their, their jobs at oil and gas companies. It's a very powerful currency, you know, that there are these forces that are amassed against us to use, uh, Kenny's verbiage, foreign funded forces. And a lot of this is based on Vivian Krauss's work. Yeah. Not so much the Canadian Energy Center, uh, but, the Alberta government is also having a public inquiry into foreign-funded anti-Alberta campaigns. And so the idea here is, you know, there's all this American money coming into Canada to these environmental NGOs that are, you know, holding up energy projects and thwarting the economy and so on.
4: You have to imagine that whatever comes after the oil sands for Alberta Whatever that plan is, could probably use $120 million to get it going.
5: Well, exactly. I can't wrap my head around that $30 million budget. I think, yeah, I have no idea where that's going. And, and I'm pretty sure you can't FOIP it either because of the, the way this is set up. It's not part of the
4: government, per se. Well, that dog photo wasn't free. Jeremy, uh, I want to duly note something that I think got overlooked Without judgment, there was a lot of coverage of the uh, of the death of Christy Blatchford. Hmm. But as fate had it, the same day that she died uh, of cancer, at the same hospital, and on the same floor, another journalist died. And that, uh, that journalist was Anne Kingston, hmm. who I knew very briefly, and, and on a handful of occasions, she joined me in this studio, but whose work I admired for years— And um, a lot less was said about that. So I want to duly note it because uh, Anne Kingston, in in, in my limited uh, conversations with her, made a real impression on me and and just uh, struck me as someone who approached journalism from like a really deeply human perspective and someone who... Sometimes, when against the prevailing wisdom and trends and opinions, but not in some sort of like uh, flame-throwing controversialist way, just because I think that's where her sense of morality took her. I'm going to play a quick clip from Anne's appearance on Canada Land in December 2015. This is Anne Kingston discussing the disappearance of Canada's long-form census and Canada's treatment of its data
2: the things that struck me doing the piece was, and more and more, it was just how normalized it has become in Canada. We talk about the libraries closing, we talk about, you know, this, the census, and we talk about all these things. And we sort of think it's become a norm. And it's almost as if we're a nerd to the consequences of it. It's a frog in, you know, slowly warming water. We don't even think about it. And that's, as I was writing this, it struck me that we we're all kind of bovine on this issue, or we should be. Absolutely inflamed, but in order to do that, we have to get the facts, and it's very hard to yeah. get that information to begin
4: with. And because there's such a collection of disparate issues that you've you've kind of brought them all together, no one's put a name to it. Like, what is this problem?
2: Yeah, and that was the purpose of the piece was to to say, look, this country is vanishing before our eyes.
4: Jeremy, that's just the smallest bit of um, of Ann Kingston, and I encourage people. If if uh, I'm sure you have read her, whether you know you've read her or not. But uh, why not take this opportunity to go through her body of work? It is extensive. She's a true journalist, and she will be missed. May her memory be a blessing. Absolutely. She was a trusted writer. Like, you could always
5: trust her stuff. Duly noted. Jeremy, what did you bring for us today? So I want to note an Edmonton podcast called A Tale of Two Weeklies," And it's about two alt-weekly papers in Edmonton that were rivals for I think it was 26 years from the 1990s onward. And this podcast series is made by three Edmontonians who had connections to those papers and are now doing a retrospective because the papers are gone and looking back on their glory days, on the legal fights uh, that they had, uh, on bad blood. And I don't know, it's just a great story of a good old newspaper war. So that's my pick, A Tale of Two
4: weeklies. I love that idea, you know? I mean, like, they'll be making movies and documentaries and podcast series about Biggie versus Tupac for the next hundred years, but the petty rivalries between journalists, when newspapers go defunct, all of that is lost to the ages. All of the hatred and spite, and it can be terrifically entertaining. I'm going to listen to that. Duly noted. Jeremy, uh, I want to duly note something that I think got overlooked Without judgment, there was a lot of coverage of the uh, of the death of Christy Blatchford. Hmm. But as fate had it, the same day that she died uh, of cancer at the same hospital and on the same floor, another journalist died. And that uh, that journalist was Anne Kingston, Hmm. who I knew very briefly and, and on a handful of occasions. She joined me in this studio, but whose work I admired for years And um, a lot less was said about that. So I want to duly note it because uh, Anne Kingston, in in, in my limited uh, conversations with her, made a real impression on me and and just uh, struck me as someone who approached journalism from like a really deeply human perspective and someone who... Sometimes, when against the prevailing wisdom and trends and opinions, but not in some sort of like uh, flame-throwing controversialist way, just because I think that's where her sense of morality took her. I'm going to play a quick clip from Anne's appearance on Canada Land in December 2015. This is Anne Kingston discussing the disappearance of Canada's long-form census and Canada's treatment of its data
2: the things that struck me doing the piece was, and more and more, it was just how normalized it has become in Canada. We talk about the libraries closing, we talk about, you know, this, the census, and we talk about all these things, and we sort of think it's become a norm. And it's almost as if we're a nerd to the <laughs> consequences of it. It's a frog in, you know, slowly warming water. We don't even think about it. And that's, as I was writing this, it struck me that we we're all kind of bovine on this issue, or we should be absolutely inflamed, but in order to do that, we have to get the facts, and it's very hard to yeah. get that information to begin with.
4: And because there's such a collection of disparate issues that you've, you've kind of brought them all together, no one's put a name to it. Like, what is this problem?
2: Yeah, and that was the purpose of the piece, was to to say, look, this country is vanishing before our eyes.
4: Jeremy, that's just the smallest bit of, um, of Anne Kingston, and I encourage people, if, if uh, I'm sure you have read her, whether you know you've read her or not... But uh, why not take this opportunity to go through her body of work? It is extensive. She's a true journalist, and she will be missed. May her memory be a blessing. Absolutely. She was a trusted writer. Like, you could always trust her stuff. Duly
5: noted. Jeremy, what did you bring for us today? So I want to note an Edmonton podcast called A Tale of Two Weeklies," And it's about two all-weekly papers in Edmonton that were rivals... For, I think it was 26 years from the 1990s onward and this podcast series is made by three Edmontonians who had connections to those papers and are now doing a retrospective because the papers are gone and looking back on their glory days on the legal fights uh, that they had uh, on bad blood and I don't know it's just a great story of a good old newspaper war so that's my pick a tale of two weeklies.
4: I love that idea. You know, I mean, like they'll be making movies and documentaries and podcast series about Biggie versus Tupac for the next hundred years. But the petty rivalries between journalists, when newspapers go defunct, all of that is lost to the ages, all of the hatred and spite. And it can be terrifically entertaining. I'm going to listen to that. Duly noted. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over three million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com/canadaland. Once again, it's betterhelp.com. Along with five free travel packs, you'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D three and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com/slash Canadaland. That is drinkag1.com slash Canadaland. Check it out. Jeremy, the last thing we're going to talk about today is we're going to be talking about this, I expect, in different ways and covering this in different ways for a while now. The biggest story in Canada continues to be Wet'suwet'en and the blockades, the protests across the country, the reaction to it. And here, of course, I want to talk about the media side of that. So this is by no means exhaustive because it's a fast-moving story. There's a lot going on. And um, I'm going to touch on a few things and want to hear what you have to say about them. I guess the first thing is that I've noticed that even as our headlines and airwaves are filled with conversation about this uh, with the, uh, the railways closing, there's a lack of basic understanding. And people want to understand. They want to bone up on the facts. And uh, news organizations have run many explainers. A lot of columnists have taken uh, a try at like, okay, well, here's how it works. It's okay not to know things. We should know more about this because it's a very big deal. So when you're getting into the granular stuff about, well, like, who are the uh, elected leaders? Who are the hereditary chiefs? Are they in conflict or do they have different jurisdictions? What's going on? Who supports this? How many people support it? I think a lot of people turn to the media just for basic information, and the media has tried to provide it with facts. But the facts in those articles are often contradictory. Robert Jago wrote a piece for us, which people should check out now on our website, is just looking at like the contradictory information that you get depending on which news source you read. So The Vancouver province, they had a piece that said that protesters have aligned themselves with five Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who are opposed to the pipeline. Five chiefs opposed. The day before that, the Globe and Mail reported, now nine of 13 hereditary house chiefs' positions are filled by men. Okay. Four of the positions are vacant. Eight of the nine men oppose. So we had five opposing before. Now we've got eight opposing. One of the chiefs has taken a neutral position, says the Globe and Mail. You can go to the website of the office of the Wet'suwet'en, the official organization that represents the chiefs, and they say that there are seven chiefs, not five, not nine, not 13. There are seven. Okay. Then you've got other stuff entering into the the information stream, like, uh, you know, there's this uh, word that there's another chief, Teresa Tate Day, I mentioned her last week, and she's a hereditary chief that we're told supports this pipeline in this video. And she says, you know, 85% of Wet'suwet'en people support this pipeline. And that video gets spread around by uh, this this Twitter account, Canada Action, which turns out to be this pro-pipeline Twitter account. Well, Robert Jago looks into this and says, well, she's not listed as a hereditary chief. Her status as such is at a minimum contested. And the 85% stat that she's throwing around, which has been picked up, and Jason Kenney has retweeted that, 85% of Wet'suwet'en support the pipeline, he says. Robert Jago can't find a source for that statistic, that 85% people support it. So, I don't know, I guess the first thing I wanna say is just like, we don't have just the basics down. Jago writes for us, listen, this isn't the case when we're reporting on other things. The number of senators in Canada, he writes, is not a matter of opinion. The number of MLAs in the BC legislature is known as are the number of town councillors in any jurisdiction in, in, in BC or, you know, Meaford, Ontario, we know, like, like you, you know this. So the number of what so it's in hereditary chiefs and the number who stand in opposition to the pipeline, it should not be uncertain in the height of a national crisis and in the third year of this dispute breaking into the headlines. And that's what Robert Jago wrote for us. So maybe we could start there. Yeah. I mean, I think
5: we, if we're honest in the media, Uh, The Canadian media is largely white and we are out of our element covering this story. That's just how it is. And you see that in the reporting. You see that in the commentary as well. uh, The proliferation of takes on this whole thing that we don't understand. Yeah, not only the basics, we don't understand the issues at play here. Uh, There seems to be this idea that's prevalent you know, this consensus view that reconciliation is something where, you know, we all just get along. So stop making all this fuss. And then, you know, Canada will be better and we'll be on our way to reconciliation. But I don't even think we know what that means. We don't know what reconciliation means. And so, yeah, I kind of I look at this and I I keep thinking back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the document that was produced out of that the report. And that almost seems like a good starting point in terms of understanding what's at stake here and what's driving this. I just think we are very much out of our element and
4: it shows. Yeah, I mean, there, there's haziness. There's haziness as to, in practice, what does reconciliation mean? In practice, what does nation-to-nation nation mean? There's no haziness among certain voices in this. Like, you know, there's a voice that whatever you might say about it, it's got a consistent position, and that is this uh, this voice saying that this is illegal and all the land is Canada and basically just challenging the legitimacy of any Indigenous leadership and uh, challenging the rights of any of the protesters to, to be doing what they're doing, and basically saying, you know, let's go crack some heads, let's let's shut this down. I find that a uh, deplorable position, and it's at odds actually with the law, internationally and Canadian. But it is the legacy of Canada, like it's people who are who are representing what it's always been, and into the vacuum of of really not understanding or knowing what is like. Okay, we all want to get along, but when we have a conflict, who wins? you know, it's one thing to not know the facts. It's another thing to default to this position that it's all illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And I have to bring up something that I'm very uncomfortable bringing up. And I I think that I have in the most, uh, you know, straightforward way, a conflict of interest when it comes to discussing the last um, episode of the Sunday edition, Michael Enright show, you know, listeners of the show know that he was uh, an important person to me uh, professionally and, and personally. And, uh, It's hard when somebody, you know, uh, to criticize them and, you know, every decision is like a recusal or a disclosure. And I think probably this is like a recusal. Like, I don't think that I'm somebody who can criticize Michael Enright because uh, I care for him so much and I, I respect him as a journalist. And like, I can't help but remember that, like, when even the idea when I was very young of indigenous issues to me was something that was sort of like buried in Canada's past and not something I thought I had to think about. The first person in my life who said to me, like, this is happening right now. It's not right. There is this thing called the Indian Act, and it's deplorable and needs to be torn up. That person was Michael Enright. So, you know, that's going to lead me to have a certain kind of bias in discussing what happened this past week. I can't excuse what happened on his show because I think he started from a position of curiosity in trying to understand just these basic facts, what's going on, and who who speaks for this these people, and and who speaks for the land, and he had on uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, the president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, on his show, and I think that it was an interesting test case where I will give him a generosity that some people won't, and thinking that I th- I do think he set out with an intention of understanding and, and listening. But somehow, and this is like a metaphor for what happens in a larger scale, something about not knowing and wanting to be informed. But then there's like, I don't know, a laziness or a rush to jump to conclusions and almost just this feeling of certainty of like, well, if they're going to walk away from the talks, then to hell with this kind of like as the interview proceeds, it feels like I'm willing to understand this only up to a certain point at which the conflict might be unresolvable. I don't know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but there was a conclusion of that that I I'm, I'm talking about this all right now because I think I can't ignore it on the show when we're talking about the coverage of what so it's in and this is how that interview ended. Let
6: me before we run out of time, let me ask you about the the long term impact of the dispute in terms of cr- the Crown indigenous relations in Canada, where do you think this is going to go?
3: Well, um you know, as I said, on the steps of the legislature, reconciliation cannot be achieved at gunpoint. And we cannot achieve reconciliation by throwing matriarchs and elders and children in jail. Uh, we cannot achieve reconciliation by choppering in the paramilitary RCMP forces in full battle gear, uh, surrounding encampments, um, you know, it was absolutely shades of Vietnam what happened up in Woodson territory. territories. So,
6: well, well, hang on a second. Vietnam were they napalming your people?
3: Uh, you weren't there. No, I, I can tell you. I can tell you if choppers started landing in your backyard, and teams of heavily armed police started running through your front yard and um, dragging you out of your homes and so on and forth. Now you'd be a little upset. Chief,
4: thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's
3: good to talk to you.
4: So, yeah, I don't know what I can say about that. I think uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, I think, made an excellent point there in the face of, I think, you know, kind of an arrogant posture there. And and I think it's I think that for Michael, it's sort of like the boomer thing of like if you touch certain cultural touch points of, oh, you're going to mention Vietnam. For other people, it's mentioning the whole. Don't compare it like there's something sacred about these certain historical events. And the Grand Chief there, I think, made an excellent point. Like, what do you, like, does it have to get to Napalm? If there's choppers coming into your land and people are taking away your people and cops in military gear, yeah, I'm going to make that analogy. And there was just a shortness of temper and, and, uh, I don't know. And then the interview's over. And that's the other thing. Like, I've produced that show and there's always the ability to ask another question and try to take it a little bit further. But it did feel like that was kind of hustled to its conclusion. That's all I have to say about that, I guess.
5: That goes to show the gap between the Canadian media and what we're covering here. There's a gap in experience, in knowledge. And, and so, yeah, it comes out in interviews like that, where it's like, certainly that's not something Michael Enright has ever experienced, right? Whereas, yeah, for a lot of Indigenous people, that is the experience of, of living in fear, and being under attack in myriad ways, and I totally agree with what you said about you know there's these historical events that I don't know if we lift them and put them aside. It's almost like we lift our own era out of history like it's this it's this default view that you know we're here, this is how it is, and this is the fact that you have to live with like that this settler society is is here and dominant and calls the shots and it'll be that way, you know, till kingdom come. And, and what's happening with, with this fight is that that's really being challenged that narrative. And I think, yeah, mainstream Canadian society is profoundly uncomfortable with that.
4: Yeah. The last piece I want to uh, talk about is another CBC piece uh, by, Jorge Barrera, who is uh, a journalist who's been covering Indigenous issues uh, for some time, somebody who was a reporter for APTN, uh, now for CPC Indigenous. And I think over the years has done some terrific reporting and has built up a lot of goodwill with different Indigenous communities across the country, which I think uh, that reputation and that relationship was challenged with this story that he ran, where um, what happened was, of course, we've got these um, protests along the rail tracks, across this country, and Jorge was covering the uh, Mohawk protest here in Ontario. The piece is uh, titled, Inside the Meeting Between Mohawk and Canada's Indigenous Services Minister. So Mark Miller, the Indigenous Services Minister, he met with uh, Mohawk protesters and Mohawk leadership in Ontario um, to try to talk them into letting trains pass through their blockade. And what happened was there was a private meeting in which media was not welcome. And somebody recorded it and gave Jorge Barrera uh, a copy of that recording, and he based his story on that recording. And the response to that from Indigenous Voices has been very critical. This was brought to my attention by Ryan McMahon, and I asked him to share some thoughts on the piece. Here's what he had to say.
0: The response to Jorge's article, I think, is, is, is an appropriate one on the ground with Indigenous folks. They're skeptical. They're, they're, they don't trust um, the media. Uh, there's a clip uh, circulating around right now where Molly Wickham at a fundraiser is, is talking about the need for Indigenous created media to provide nuance and context and, and complexity around the stories and the issues. And it's being used as propaganda against the Wet'suwet'en. And, and Molly's point is simply that, you know, we need to ensure that the messaging is accurate and strong and comes from an Indigenous understanding. And um, what has happened here with Jorge's story, uh, You know, while factually these things are true, certainly in the room, we see the reactions of many people that were actually in the room, uh, a young man by the name of Jordan Brandt who created a Twitter thread that got a lot of traction, and a Facebook post from Christy Belcourt who was also in the room that said, in fact, this reporter did not get it right. Um, This reporter probably misread a lot of these facts and and is guilty of inflaming the incident and Already at a at an incident where things are very very dicey minute by minute even second by second at that point having somebody publish something that has been leaked out of a meeting where they were meeting in good faith Probably not the most helpful thing in the world
4: so, Jeremy, there there are three problems people had with Jorge's piece. Um, the first mm-hmm. is that he had this recording at all and that it was disrespectful for him to publish what was supposed to be a private meeting. I, I won't talk about that later, but that's the first problem that a lot of people had. The second is that because he wasn't there, the story is misleading. In the story, basically, it says that they were kind of like hashing out maybe uh, a de-escalation where uh, the Mohawk protesters might actually allow the trains to function again, but then there was a call from a hereditary chief, Chief Woos. And that call, it is suggested in this piece, really shut down any chance of a a de-escalation or any kind of negotiation. And uh, people who were there say, that's not what happened. The the protesters were not going to step aside, uh, regardless of that phone call. And if you had been in that room, you would have known that. And the third thing that was pointed out about the piece um, by Jordan Brandt, who Ryan mentioned there is that there are are these kind of cliches uh, and characterizations uh, that that, that arise from the piece. Um, I'll I'll go direct here. Barrera writes, some were saying they were witnessing the start of an indigenous uprising and revolution. Barrera goes back and reminds us that the Mohawks of Tayindonaga have shut down the 401, one of Canada's busiest highways, and the CN tracks in the past. Uh, And he ends the piece with this uh, description of Red Mohawk warrior flags flapping uh, from the raised level rail crossing as masked young men wearing camouflage, occasionally gazed through binoculars at the OPP cruisers up the road. And we see pictures of these Mohawk protesters and their military, you know, camouflage with masks on their face and, and conjuring up uh, confrontations in the past. And I think that uh, th- that is leading people nowhere but with thoughts of, um, wow, I'm terrified. You know, these are, you know, angry masked mohawks in military gear. Um, you know, be a- be afraid. I think that's the part that was most egregious to me from a completely different perspective. Um I think that the point that that, you—that, like, you know, Barrera was up front. I wasn't at this meeting. This is from a a recording. But he does present it in a way that strongly suggests this phone call was really a turning point in what happened. And other people say that's not the case. I guess I don't know. To the first point, Jeremy, um, that Jorge should not have published a story based on a leaked recording to begin with, I kind of have a problem with that. I feel like reporters, like, yeah, like, everybody wants to have, if they can— when they're trying to negotiate from a very tense standoff um, negotiations in private. And when it's a matter of incredible public interest, this is the biggest story in the country. Uh, If I got her a secret recording of one of those meetings, you better believe I'd report on that. Would you?
5: That's a good question. Given the subject matter, I don't know, to be honest, in this case where there's trust that's so fragile already uh, between indigenous people and the media, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if I would run it. I would have to think long and hard about it.
4: I, you know, I try to listen like openly to um, discussions about how there are different cultures of storytelling and representation. And I think that you have to, I think if, if, if you're touching these issues or covering them, uh, take into consideration the history of misrepresentation. But the idea that it's a reporter's job to think about and protect the sensitivities of a relationship, uh, you know, uh, that's not the job. The job is to report on what's going on, but it's also not the job to inflame things and to kind of amp things up. And I, and I, I, I do think that Jorge's piece did that in, in, in a couple of different ways.
5: I mean, this kind of goes back to Christy Blatchford in a way, like one of the things after she died. So obviously her coverage of indigenous issues, I would describe as abysmal. But one of the things that she would tell young reporters was that, you know, write what you write and don't give a fuck what other people think. And there's an element of truth to that, right? That you need that fearlessness as a journalist. But I don't know. I think there's like a whole other element that that we do have to take into account, which is relationships. It's weird. I don't know. It's it's a weird tension. It's a weird tension. Yeah. Between like yeah, sure, you get information, you put it out there, you expose what is hidden, all that stuff. But I kind of look at it and I'm like, no, you actually do need to think about what your reporting will do. And I think there's increasingly a recognition of that.
4: Well, I haven't been as quick to damn Christy Blatchford outright as as some have, because I do think there's something instructive and useful and essential to the, to the craft and, and, and the practice of saying, my job is to get the facts and report them. And if I get too concerned about whether or not you're going to like me or what's going to happen because I, I report these facts, the outcome I'm not responsible for. I'm not responsible for, you know, conferring sympathy to one party or the other. I'm responsible for the truth. Mm-hmm. That is sort of an essential ethic of of reporting. Mm-hmm. But I think that when you look at some of the accounts that have come out after the couple of days when, you know, I think, you know, something like seven out of 10 articles on the front page of the National Post were hagiography, glorifications of Christy Blatchford, not even mentioning this stuff. Other accounts started to trickle out, like uh, Glenn Koenig, uh, Rotea Parsons' Mm. father, about the impact on his life of her reporting and the things that she overlooked because she thought she had the truth. Or things Mm -hmm. like our own news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, just remarking that, you know, Christy Blatchford had this remarkable platform. And increasingly towards the end, there was something that set her off about vulnerable people. Uh, mm. whether it was the victims. Yeah, like,
5: like boys hugging.
4: Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. a- a- men she felt were effeminate, uh, indigenous people uh, who she felt were playing the victims, sexual assault victims, you know, that... that uh, I think that there's a, a lesson there too, which is that you might think you're just telling the truth and, and letting the facts lie, but you might have second thoughts about what the full truth is, and some of the things that Glenn Koenig shared were reportable matters of fact, that belonged in Christy Blatchford's reporting about Rotea Parsons. It's
5: responsible journalism to wrestle with that, to wrestle with what will my reporting do? And especially when you're reporting on people in groups that are marginalized. And yeah, I don't know. I, the best I can come up with is you have to hold those two things in tension somehow. You're, you're fighting for the truth. You're fighting to get information out there, but not carelessly there's an obligation to, to wrestle with that to some degree.
4: Okay. That's your Canada land shortcuts. Jeremy, thank you for talking with me today. Yeah. Thanks Jesse. Listen, it's never been easier to support the work that we do here and to get ad-free versions of the show. If you go to your show notes, episode notes, it's just like the first link. You click it and in two minutes there'll be a uh, gold-plated premium podcast feed. Like It'll it'll just bloop, put the ad-free feed of Canada Land onto your podcast app and you'll be giving us $5 Canadian a month. So check that out or just go to CanadaLandShow.com slash join. You can email me about what you heard today at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I do read everything that you send me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Jeremy, where can people find you and your news organization? So the sprawl is at sprawlcalgary.com and
5: uh, sprawl Calgary on all the social media platforms.
4: Our website, canadalandshow.com is where you're going to find the piece I was talking about earlier by Robert Jago, which is titled The Reporting Gap in the Wet'suwet'en Crisis. It's a must read. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Jeremy, the last thing we're going to talk about today is we're we're going to be talking about this, I expect, in different ways and covering this in different ways for a while now. The biggest story in Canada continues to be Wet'suwet'en and the blockades, the protests across the country, the reaction to it. And here, of course, I want to talk about the media side of that. So this is by no means exhaustive because it's a fast-moving story. There's a lot going on, and um, I'm going to touch on a few things and want to hear what you have to say about them. I guess the first thing is that I've noticed that even as our headlines and airwaves are filled with conversation about this uh, with the, uh, the railways closing, there's a lack of basic understanding. And people want to understand. They want to bone up on the facts. And uh, news organizations have run many explainers. A lot of columnists have taken uh, a try at like, okay, well, here's how it works. It's okay not to know things. We should know more about this because it's a very big deal. So when you're getting into the granular stuff about, well, like, who are the uh, elected leaders who are the hereditary chiefs are they in conflict or do they have different jurisdictions what's going on who supports this how many people support it i think a lot of people turn to the media just for basic information and the media has tried to provide it with facts but the facts in those articles are often contradictory robert jago wrote a piece for us which people should check out now on our website is just looking at like the contradictory information that you get depending on which news source you read so The Vancouver province, they had a piece that said that protesters have aligned themselves with five Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who are opposed to the pipeline. Five chiefs opposed. The day before that, the Globe and Mail reported, now nine of 13 hereditary house chiefs positions are filled by men. Okay. Four of the positions are vacant. Eight of the nine men oppose. So we had five opposing before. Now we've got eight opposing. One of the chiefs has taken a neutral position, says the Globe and Mail. You can go to the website of the office of the Wet'suwet'en, the official organization that represents the chiefs, and they say that there are seven chiefs, not five, not nine, not 13. There are seven. Okay. Then you've got other stuff entering into the the information stream, like, uh, you know, there's this uh, word that there's another chief, Teresa Tate Day, I mentioned her last week, and she's a hereditary chief that we're told supports this pipeline in this video. And she says, you know, 85% of Wet'suwet'en people support this pipeline. And that video gets spread around by uh, this this Twitter account, Canada Action, which turns out to be this pro-pipeline Twitter account. Well, Robert Jago looks into this and says, well, she's not listed as a hereditary chief. Her status as such is at a minimum contested. And the 85% stat that she's throwing around, which has been picked up, and Jason Kenney has retweeted that, 85% of Wet'suwet'en support the pipeline, he says. Robert Jago can't find a source for that statistic, that 85% people support it. So, I don't know, I guess the first thing I wanna say is just like, we don't have just the basics down. Jago writes for us, listen, this isn't the case when we're reporting on other things. The number of senators in Canada, he writes, is not a matter of opinion. The number of MLAs in the BC legislature is known as are the number of town councillors in any jurisdiction in, in, in BC or, you know, Meaford, Ontario, we know, like, like you, you know this. So the number of what so it's in hereditary chiefs and the number who stand in opposition to the pipeline, it should not be uncertain in the height of a national crisis and in the third year of this dispute breaking into the headlines. And that's what Robert Jago wrote for us. So maybe we could start there. Yeah. I mean, I think
5: we, if we're honest in the media, Uh, The Canadian media is largely white and we are out of our element covering this story. That's just how it is. And you see that in the reporting. You see that in the commentary as well. uh, The proliferation of takes on this whole thing that we don't understand. Yeah, not only the basics, we don't understand the issues at play here. Uh, There seems to be this idea that's prevalent you know, this consensus view that reconciliation is something where, you know, we all just get along. So stop making all this fuss. And then, you know, Canada will be better and we'll be on our way to reconciliation. But I don't even think we know what that means. We don't know what reconciliation means. And so, yeah, I kind of I look at this and I I keep thinking back to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the document that was produced out of that the report and that almost seems like a good starting point in terms of understanding what's at stake here and what's driving this i just think we are very much out of our element
4: and it shows yeah, I mean, there, there's haziness. There's haziness as to, in practice, what does reconciliation mean? In practice, what does nation-to-nation nation mean? There's no haziness among certain voices in this. Like, you know, there's a voice that whatever you might say about it, it's got a consistent position, and that is this uh, this voice saying that this is illegal and all the land is Canada and basically just challenging the legitimacy of any Indigenous leadership and uh, challenging the rights of any of the protesters to, to be doing what they're doing, and basically saying, you know, let's go crack some heads, let's let's shut this down. I find that a uh, deplorable position, and it's at odds actually with the law, internationally and Canadian. But it is the legacy of Canada, like it's people who are who are representing what it's always been, and into the vacuum of of really not understanding or knowing what is like. Okay, we all want to get along, but when we have a conflict, who wins? You know, it's one thing to not know the facts. It's another thing to default to this position that it's all illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And I have to bring up something that I'm very uncomfortable bringing up. And I, I think that I have in the most, uh, you know, straightforward way, a conflict of interest when it comes to discussing the last um, episode of the Sunday edition, Michael Enright show. You know, listeners of the show know that he was uh, an important person to me uh, professionally and and personally and uh It's hard when somebody, you know, uh, to criticize them and, you know, every decision is like a recusal or a disclosure. And I think probably this is like a recusal. Like, I don't think that I'm somebody who can criticize Michael Enright because uh, I care for him so much and I, I respect him as a journalist. And like, I can't help but remember that, like, when even the idea when I was very young of indigenous issues to me was something that was sort of like buried in Canada's past and not something I thought I had to think about. The first person in my life who said to me, like, this is happening right now. It's not right. There is this thing called the Indian Act and it's deplorable and needs to be torn up. That person was Michael Enright. So, you know, that's going to lead me to have a certain kind of bias in discussing what happened this past week. I can't excuse what happened on his show because I think he started from a position of curiosity in trying to understand just these basic facts, what's going on, and who who speaks for this these people, and and who speaks for the land, and he had on uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, the president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, on his show, and I think that it was an interesting test case where I will give him a generosity that some people won't, and thinking that I I do think he set out with an intention of understanding and, and listening. But somehow, and this is like a metaphor for what happens in a larger scale, something about not knowing and wanting to be informed. But then there's like, I don't know, a laziness or a rush to jump to conclusions and almost just this feeling of certainty of like, well, if they're going to walk away from the talks, then to hell with this kind of like as the interview proceeds, it feels like I'm willing to understand this only up to a certain point at which the conflict might be unresolvable. I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but there was a conclusion of that that I I'm, I'm talking about this all right now because I think I can't ignore it on the show when we're talking about the coverage of what so it's in and this is how that interview ended. Let
6: me before we run out of time, let me ask you about the the long term impact of the dispute in terms of the Crown indigenous relations in Canada, where do you think this is going to go?
3: Well, um you know, as I said on the steps of the legislature, reconciliation cannot be achieved at gunpoint. And we cannot achieve reconciliation by throwing matriarchs and elders and children in jail. Uh, we cannot achieve reconciliation by choppering in the paramilitary RCMP forces in full battle gear, uh, surrounding encampments, um, you know, it was absolutely shades of Vietnam what happened mm-hmm. up in Woodson and territories. So, well,
6: well, hang on a second. Vietnam were they napalming your people?
3: Uh, you weren't there. No, and I, I, I can Vietnam. tell you. I can tell you if choppers started landing in your backyard, and teams of heavily armed police started running through your front yard and um, dragging you out of your homes and so on and forth. Now you'd be a little upset. Chief, thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's good to talk to you. So, yeah, I don't
4: know what I can say about that. I think uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, I think, made an excellent point there in the face of, I think, you know, kind of an arrogant posture there. And and I think it's I think that for Michael, it's sort of like the boomer thing of like if you touch certain cultural touch points of, oh, you're going to mention Vietnam. For other people, it's mentioning the whole. Don't compare it like there's something sacred about these certain historical events. And the Grand Chief there, I think, made an excellent point. Like, what do you, like, does it have to get to Napalm? If there's choppers coming into your land and people are taking away your people and cops in military gear, yeah, I'm going to make that analogy. And there was just a shortness of temper, and, and uh, I don't know. And then the interview's over. And that's the other thing. Like, I've produced that show, and there's always the ability to ask another question and try to take it a little bit further. But it did feel like that was kind of hustled to its conclusion. That's all I have to say about that, I guess.
5: That goes to show the gap between the Canadian media and what we're covering here. There's a gap in experience, in knowledge. And, and so, yeah, it comes out in interviews like that, where it's like, certainly that's not something Michael Enright has ever experienced, right? Whereas, yeah, for a lot of Indigenous people, that is the experience of, of living in fear, and being under attack in myriad ways, and I totally agree with what you said about you know there's these historical events that I don't know if we lift them and put them aside. It's almost like we lift our own era out of history like it's this it's this default view that you know we're here, this is how it is, and this is the fact that you have to live with like that this settler society is is here and dominant and calls the shots and it'll be that way, you know, till kingdom come. And, and what's happening with, with this fight is that that's really being challenged that narrative. And I think, yeah, mainstream Canadian society is profoundly uncomfortable with that.
4: Yeah. The last piece I want to uh, talk about is another CBC piece uh, by, Jorge Barrera, who is uh, a journalist who's been covering Indigenous issues uh, for some time, somebody who was a reporter for APTN, uh, now for CPC Indigenous. And I think over the years has done some terrific reporting and has built up a lot of goodwill with different Indigenous communities across the country, which I think uh, that reputation and that relationship was challenged with this story that he ran, where um, what happened was, of course, we've got these um, protests along the rail tracks, Across this country, and Jorge was covering the uh, Mohawk protest here in Ontario. The piece is uh, titled Inside the Meeting Between Mohawk and Canada's Indigenous Services Minister. So, Mark Miller, the Indigenous Services Minister, he met with uh, Mohawk protesters and Mohawk leadership in Ontario um, to try to talk them into letting trains pass through their blockade. And what happened was there was a private meeting in which media was not welcome and somebody recorded it and gave Jorge Barrera uh, a copy of that recording and he based his story on that recording. And the response to that from indigenous voices has been very critical. This was brought to my attention by Ryan McMahon and I asked him to share some thoughts on the piece. Here's what he had to say.
0: The response to Jorge's article I think is, is, is an appropriate one on the ground with indigenous folks. They're skeptical. they don't trust um, the media. Uh, There's a clip uh, circulating around right now where Molly Wickham at a fundraiser is is talking about the need for Indigenous-created media to provide nuance and context and and complexity around the stories and the issues. And it's being used as propaganda against the Wet'suwet'en. And Molly's point is simply that you know, we need to ensure that the messaging is accurate and strong and comes from an indigenous understanding. And um, what has happened here with Jorge's story, uh, you know, while factually these things are true, certainly in the room we see the reactions of many people that were actually in the room. Uh, A young man by the name of Jordan Brandt who created a Twitter thread that got a lot of traction and a Facebook post from Christy Belcourt who was also in the room that said, in fact, this reporter did not get it right Um, This reporter probably misread a lot of these facts and and is guilty of inflaming the incident. And already at at an incident where things are very, very dicey minute by minute, even second by second at that point, having somebody publish something that has been leaked out of a meeting where they were meeting in good faith, probably not the most helpful thing in the world. So, Jeremy, there there are
4: three problems people had with Jorge's piece. Um, the first mm-hmm. is that he had this recording at all and that it was disrespectful for him to publish what was supposed to be a private meeting. I, I won't talk about that later, but that's the first problem that a lot of people had. The second is that because he wasn't there, the story is misleading. In the story, basically, it says that they were kind of like hashing out maybe uh, a de-escalation where uh, the Mohawk protesters might actually allow the trains to function again, but then there was a call from a hereditary chief, Chief Woos, and that call, it is suggested in this piece, really shut down any chance of a, of a de-escalation or any kind of negotiation. And uh, people who were there say, that's not what happened. The, the protesters were not going to step aside, uh, regardless of that phone call. And if you had been in that room, you would have known that. And the third thing that was pointed out about the piece um, by Jordan Brandt, who Ryan mentioned there is that there are are these kind of cliches and characterizations uh, that that, that arise from the piece. Um, I'll I'll go direct here. Barrera writes, some were saying they were witnessing the start of an indigenous uprising and revolution. Barrera goes back and reminds us that the Mohawks of Tyendinaga have shut down the 401, one of Canada's busiest highways, and the CN tracks in the past. Uh, And he ends the piece with this uh, description of Red Mohawk warrior flags flapping uh, from the raised level rail crossing as masked young men wearing camouflage occasionally gazed through binoculars at the OPP cruisers up the road. And we see pictures of these Mohawk protesters and their military, you know, camouflage with masks on their face and, and conjuring up uh, confrontations in the past. And I think that uh, th- that is leading people nowhere but with thoughts of, um, wow, I'm terrified. You know, these are, you know, angry masked mohawks in military gear. Um, you know, be a- be afraid. I think that's the part that was most egregious to me from a completely different perspective, Um I think that the point that you... that that Like, you know, Barrera was up front. I wasn't at this meeting. This is from a, a recording. But he does present it in a way that strongly suggests this phone call was really a turning point in what happened. And other people say that's not the case. I guess I don't know. To the first point, Jeremy, um, that Jorge should not have published a story based on a leaked recording to begin with. I kind of have a problem with that. I feel like reporters, like, yeah, I, like, everybody wants to have, if they can when they're trying to negotiate from a very tense standoff um, negotiations in private. And when it's a matter of incredible public interest, this is the biggest story in the country. Uh, if I got her a secret recording of one of those meetings, you better believe I'd report on that. Would you?
5: So that's a good question. Given the subject matter, I don't know, to be honest, in this case where there's trust that's so fragile already uh, between indigenous people and the media, <laughs> I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if I would run it. I would have to think long and hard about it.
4: I, you know, I try to listen like openly to um, discussions about how there are different cultures of storytelling and representation. And I think that you have to, I think if, if, if you're touching these issues or covering them, uh, taking into consideration the history of misrepresentation. But the idea that it's a reporter's job to think about and protect the sensitivities of a relationship, uh, you know, uh, that's not the job. The job is to report on what's going on, but it's also not the job to inflame things and to kind of amp things up. And I, and I, I, I do think that Jorge's piece did that in in, in a couple of different ways.
5: I mean, this kind of goes back to Christy Blatchford in a way, like one of the things after she died. So obviously her coverage of indigenous issues, I would describe as abysmal. But one of the things that she would tell young reporters was that, you know, write what you write and don't give a fuck what other people think. And there's an element of truth to that, right? That you need that fearlessness as a journalist. But I don't know. I think there's like a whole other element that that we do have to take into account, which is relationships. It's weird. I don't know. It's it's a weird tension. It's a weird tension. Yeah. Between like yeah, sure. You get information, you put it out there, you expose what is hidden, all that stuff. But I kind of look at it and I'm like, no, you actually do need to think about what your reporting will do. And I think there's increasingly a recognition of that.
4: Well, I haven't been as quick to damn Christy Blatchford outright as as some have, because I do think there's something instructive and useful and essential to the to the craft and and, and the practice of saying. My job is to get the facts and report them. And if I get too concerned about whether or not you're going to like me or what's going to happen because I, I report these facts, the outcome I'm not responsible for, I'm not responsible for, you know, conferring sympathy to one party the other, I'm responsible for the truth. Mm-hmm. That is sort of an essential ethic of of reporting. Mm-hmm. But I think that when you look at some of the accounts that have come out after the couple of days when, you know, I think, you know, something like seven out of 10 articles on the front page of the National Post were hagiography, glorifications of Christy Blatchford, not even mentioning this stuff. Other accounts started to trickle out, like uh, Glenn Koenig, uh, Rotea Parsons' Mm. father, about the impact on his life of her reporting and the things that she overlooked because she thought she had the truth. Or things Mm -hmm. like our own news editor, Jonathan Goldsby, just remarking that, you know, Christy Blatchford had this remarkable platform. And increasingly towards the end, there was something that set her off about vulnerable people. Uh, mm. whether it was the, victims. yeah, like,
5: like boys hugging.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A, a, a men she felt were effeminate, uh, indigenous people, uh, who she felt were playing the victims, sexual assault victims, you know, that, that, uh, I think that there's a, a lesson there too, which is that you might think you're just telling the truth and, and letting the facts lie, but you might have second thoughts about what the full truth is. And some of the things that Glenn Canning shared were reportable matters of fact that belonged in Christy Blatchford's reporting about Rotea Parsons.
5: It's responsible journalism to wrestle with that, to wrestle with what will my reporting do? And especially when you're reporting on people in groups that are marginalized. And yeah, I don't know. I, the best I can come up with is you have to hold those two things in tension somehow. You're, you're fighting for the truth. You're fighting to get information out there, but not carelessly. There's an obligation to to wrestle with that to some degree.
4: Okay, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Jeremy, thank you for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Listen, it's never been easier to support the work that we do here and to get ad-free versions of the show. If you go to your show notes, episode notes, it's just like the first link. You click it and in two minutes there'll be a uh, gold-plated premium podcast feed. Like it'll, it'll just bloop, put the ad-free feed of Canada Land onto your podcast app and you'll be giving us $5 Canadian a month. So check that out or just go to CanadaLandShow.com slash join. You can email me about what you heard today at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I do read everything that you send me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Jeremy, where can people find you and your news organization?
5: So the sprawl is at sprawlcalgary.com and uh, sprawl Calgary on all the social media platforms.
4: Our website, canadalandshow.com is where you're going to find the piece I was talking about earlier by Robert Jago, which is titled The Reporting Gap in the Wet'suwet'en Crisis. It's a must read. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria visit them online at cfub.ca.